You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome to Nowhere to Run. My name is Chris. Thank you for tuning in to the show, however it is that you found it, whether it was through Revelations Radio Network, the Revere Radio Network, the Black Bolt Radio Network, iTunes, YouTube, Google searches, whatever. I'm super glad that you're here. You can contact me through the website, which is NowhereToRunRadio.com. Your questions, comments, and concerns can be emailed to me there by hitting the contact page, or you can go to the comment section of each post and leave comments. And that website is sort of a hub for a lot of the various projects and ministries that I'm involved in. So you can check the sidebar there for other things and other radio shows and videos and things like that. Okay, so let's get started. I've been a little late in in getting these shows out. This week has been another week where I was pretty ill. Last uh, yesterday, I laid in bed pretty much all day, and, and today, half the day, and I don't know. I don't know what it is. I'm not somebody that ever gets really sick. And the thing is, is that I shouldn't be getting sick because part of like what I've been doing with my wife is we, you know, we've been. I mentioned this before. We've been trying to stop eating sugar and to stop eating wheat products and you know all this kind of stuff. And it's supposed to make your immune system like super great, but apparently it's having the reverse effect. But I think that there's also. I read there was sort of a gets worse before it gets better kind of thing, and I don't know, something like that. That's that's what I'm going with anyway right now. But it has been, it was miserable last night. I mean, just just miserable, but um, thankfully feeling uh, better right now. So lots of different stuff that we're going to do today. I'm going to talk a lot about David Icke again and theosophy this time, just a little bits of this. Hopefully, I, now I actually put a release date on the David Icke thing for the 26th of this month. And I just sort of picked it arbitrarily, like, hey, I, I think I can get done in in this amount of time. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that or not. I, I don't feel like I'm going to be able to do that, but who knows? It, it could end up working out, it's, if I, certainly if I don't have any more setbacks. I, I would encourage any prayers for for that kind of stuff because it just feels so overwhelming. And again, any any prayers in that regard really would help. I feel... More and more as I'm getting into this, it's, and hopefully I'll be able to demonstrate some of the importance of that today when we talk about it. But now I'm up to like 75 pages of notes and so many different uh, catalog videos and stuff like that. So, But I am getting really close to being done with that the cataloging and stuff and hopefully can transition into more of a how are we going to present this information. I know it's taken a long time. Trust me, nothing I've ever done has taken this long. This long. I mean, at the most, the most, the longest anything's ever taken me would be like, I mean, not even a week. And that was like a hard project. Like, oh my gosh, a week. I wasn't expecting this to be a several month thing. It just, when I got into it, it couldn't be anything less than than this. I mean, it was surprising to me too. Real quick, I wanted to mention about the verse-by-verse Bible teaching study that Mike and I have been doing on Matthew 24. It looks like it's going to take several more months to complete just to study this one chapter, but... Uh, I hope that it's helping out there. I feel like there's so much information that it's it's hard to sort of put it all in a verse-by-verse study of Matthew 24. So I feel like a little inadequate in the teaching of it. So I want to encourage you, if you're interested in it, to check out some other audio. I'm going to put in the show notes a series, about four or five-part series from a guy named Robert Van Campen that... 
explains a lot of other details and things that are not limited to a study of Matthew 24, although it talks a lot about that, but it, it, it'll encourage a lot of other places for you to go in terms of research and stuff. So check the show notes, go to the website, nowhere to run radio.com for today's show, which is 11, 11, 2010 and, and see if uh, you can't download those there and listen to that. It'll be a, it's a really interesting study. Okay, a few different things I wanted to just talk about real quick before we get into the David Icke stuff or whatever else is. I was watching this missionary conference or something like that, and this one missionary was introduced by this other guy who said of that guy, he was like, and he says that his primary ministry is to his wife and two kids and et cetera, et cetera. And, of course, this guy was a missionary. so, But it made me think about something that I had been thinking about before but never really put it in those terms, that his primary ministry was to his wife. And I, don't, I think this applies to you whether or not you're a missionary or that you do any other sorts of uh, ministry as such. But I think that your primary ministry being, your, being towards your wife has so many different advantages. Uh, Ephesians 5 uh, talks about uh, you know uh, this whole idea, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Um, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle in any such thing, but that she would would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are all members of his body. So, it, I, I'm suggesting to you that ministry to your wife and is is good for everybody. It's good for you. Uh, a good example. I'm going to give you some examples of, of what I mean about this, and I and I think you could see how it benefits you as well if you are indeed a part of this same uh, the flesh, as it were. Um, one thing I think is Bible study and. If you are, it doesn't matter where you are in relation to your wife's spiritual walk or journey, because she could be further along than you or not as far as long as you. It doesn't really matter. And I think that agreement to do a Bible study once a week, maybe go through a particular book, just decide a book to to go through and or rather and then just do a chapter a week during the week. You can, you know, email her a you know, uh, that chapter or whatever, as long as you read the, the chapter at some point that week. And then on a particular day, you can just go through it and talk about it. Even if you don't talk about a whole lot of things. And then in the meantime, what, what I'll do is I will listen to some commentators on that particular, uh, chapter because there'll be a lot of questions usually that come up with, with the different things in the, in the chapter. So so that's helpful to sort of stay ahead a little bit and to be able to answer any questions and those kinds of things. But I have really found that this has been so helpful to me and to her. We've just been growing exponentially as this 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 joint Bible study. We're going through the book of Luke and it has been so helpful and I've learned so much that I didn't anticipate learning. So that's that's one thing. I think another possibility is if your wife is in a position where she can check emails 
you know, somewhere during the course of the day. You could send daily devotionals and stuff. There's a lot of really cool uh, devotionals for women out there, uh, girlfriends in God, and uh, a bunch of others out there. You can go. There's a site which links just every possible devotional. You've got Oswald Chambers and and Spurgeon and and every every other kind of thing in the world out there too. But also, I think it's possible to go through. Um, uh, different things like uh, the Proverbs. The Proverbs are set up to, there's 31 Proverbs, so there's one proverb for every day of the week. And if you just continue to cycle through those, maybe someday you're just thinking, hey, let's just pull out and read the proverb for today and have that be a part of the 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 thing there. I think just just keeping it a part of your lives and of course, the prayer I mentioned the last uh, show or two ago, how uh, my wife and I had been doing, it, we called it, I called it a prayer acronym. I know it's not a, technically an acronym. I, I guess it's a, uh, I don't know, I didn't learn my literary words, but it's a, it, we, we, for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, the things that we were praying for, you know, I think we called it, uh, what was it, Missionary Mondays, Togetherness Tuesdays, Work Wednesdays, Thrifty Thursdays, uh, Family Fridays, Social Saturdays, and Salvation Sundays. So we play for people's salvation and stuff like that. But mainly, I just wanted to encourage anybody out there that 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 is a great thing to do. It's a great thing to try to find what fits for you or what makes sense for you. Just, again, throwing out some different ideas. But the idea that your primary ministry is towards your wife and your kids and recognizing that that's a part of you too. That's, that's also, it's not just something that you're doing to help them. It's something that's helping you along the way too. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about David Icke. Um, this particular show, I'm going to talk about some of the stuff I've been finding out the past few weeks about David Icke and theosophy, probably more specifically Alice Bailey. I, I was not, expecting this. I was expecting a lot of different stuff, but I wasn't expecting this super strong connection to Alice Bailey. And these aren't like sort of kind of connections. There is either, um, he either read Alice Bailey extensively or the entities, which he calls the guys, uh, that he was talking to, uh, obviously told him the same stuff that they told Alice Bailey. Now, in these earlier books, the first two books, Truth Vibrations and Love Changes Everything, he says he's communicating almost daily with Rakorsky, which is, uh, according to Bailey, she called him Master R, also an esoteric Saint Germain. Now, Saint Germain was a real person, but he also was, uh, in terms of theosophy, he's an ascended master, also known as um, uh, Rakorsky. David actually calls him the Lord of Civilization. And that's essentially exactly, well, not essentially, it is exactly what Alice Bailey calls Master R2. He's the Lord of Civilization. So there's no ambiguity here. And the interesting thing about that is that Alice Bailey um, is the one that gave all these attributes to to Master R, Rakorsky, or whatever. So it's clear that this, by him saying, you know, he's the Lord of Civilization and stuff like that, that's obviously him. Now, it's interesting, of course, that he, he says he's talking to Jesus, who also was an ascended master of Alice Bailey, um, the Archangel Michael, which is another ascended master that uh, that she equates with the planetary logos. Now, here's 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 the thing: 
David Icke goes into extensive detail in his earlier books about the nature of the of reality, essentially. And it basically goes like this: that uh, that divas, which are spiritual beings, and and she Alice Bailey calls them divas too. Uh, he he says that Lucifer and Satan was a diva created to um, to maintain the energy grid and all these different things. But anyway. There's an evolution process that's going on, and this earth spirit, the the Gaia God, or if you will, that is that is actually in and in the earth that's guiding the earth to blah blah blah. It's it, it evolved to this level, and and you can really I've got all these clips of him just gushing over the earth spirit about how it's just such a wonderful thing. It's just you know it's okay when it decides to destroy everything. It's it's such a wonderful wonderful loving entity that's so highly evolved and that's of course coming from alice bailey which she called planetary logoses now they are evolved to a certain extent now he also goes on in his books to talk about how there's another evolution that a planetary logos can go to the solar logos this is a a god that lives in the sun that uh that you know is very important in in theosophy because if you, if you've learned that Alice Bailey and Lucius trust her reverence of Lucifer when she talks about God she's talking about Lucifer uh, that she equates the solar logos to Lucifer. Now there's also cosmic logoses and I think that uh, it's mentioned that those are the ones that shouldn't be named they're just hugely evolved beings. Uh, David goes on to I mean. This is exactly the stu- same stuff as Alice Bailey that he's talking about how they uh, were that after you can evolve past that point to be a god of like many different solar systems. And then now black holes didn't really exist. I mean, well, they, of course, they existed, but they weren't widely known at the time of Alice Bailey. But but she's inferred that their their black hole thing is part of this other uh, logos. And, and, and Ike has taken on the modern theosophy view that the black holes are part of this super logos kind of thing. Now, here's the bottom line. Ike does a lot of hoops. Uh, he does a lot of jumping around, tries to sort of deny some of the things that he earlier said. Says, oh, you know, sometimes the entities will give you wrong names and stuff like that, which is, of course, trying to explain a way that Jesus was talking to him, except now he doesn't believe in Jesus and I, I'm going to show lots of different ways. Like it doesn't matter what he thinks that they were using a different name. The entities were telling him like detailed stories about the life of Jesus, and you know he didn't die on the cross, and all the stuff that was going on. So there was something going on wrong there. But I'm getting off track. The core thing that he believed right from the beginning. He refers to this all the time. It's like back in 1990 uh, that that that's when the truth vibrations came out. That this whole the whole thing was leading up to this cosmic evolution that was going to change humanity. That's really never changed. He has he has been preaching that at the end of every one of his books, uh, that this 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 change is coming. That's going to to change our consciousness, and that there's nothing we can do about it. It's going to bring us to a new evolution. Now, if you listen to him, and I've got some clips I'm going to play here in a little bit. You can see clearly he believes this evolution is coming from the sun. He 
he says that the evolution is going to is a direct result of the sun's rays, photons through photons, which come from the black hole. This isn't going to make any sense to you if you unless you've read the older books of his. That's why a lot of people don't understand uh, the roots of what he's saying because these books aren't even in PDF form. Um, but 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 what what he's talking about is Alice Bailey's seven rays. Now, she essentially believes that the consciousness shift in humanity is going to be caused by these seven rays that come from the solar logos that were directed from further logoses. So it, this, 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 the system goes like from the other gods transmitted through the sun to the earth, and that's, that's essentially what's going to cause this evolution. So uh, when he says... Uh, these things like that the sun is the source of this this evolution and we're not going to be able to do anything about that he's talking about the seven rays and i absolutely know that he's talking about the seven rays for lots of different reasons in fact he goes into uh the seven rays here in his book uh love changes everything and i'm going to talk about that here in just a second too there's absolutely no doubt that's what he believes now, this is pretty weird if you think about it, because it's the solar logos, which he believes is an actual, and i got some clips I'm going to play here in a second that are just like, he talks about how all the ancient you know, religions of the world are based on the sun and everything, which I could show that they're not and, and whatever. What's interesting, I, I think, as a sort of side note here, that he tries to show how Christianity is based on the sun using like Roman uh, Catholic sort of uh, uh, imagery and stuff, like the halos and stuff, which of course there's nothing in the Bible about. It's in if that stuff was added much, much later. Of course, it had nothing to do with the origins of Christianity. But So what I'm trying to say is that while that stuff may have to do with the ancient solar worship that the Illuminati really do believe in and stuff like that, like the Statue of Liberty, the seven rays, and everything about the solar logos is really talking about Lucifer or Helios, the sun god. Now, they, they really are believing and worshiping the sun. But what's so fascinating is that while he goes on these diatribes about how uh, the the Christianity is based on sun worship and therefore is worshiping this wrong god. Basically, he's using false information to try to demonstrate that, that Christianity is is worshiping a sun god. Basically, makes no sense if you know any about an amount of history that that stuff didn't appear to at least three hundred four hundred years after after Christianity existed. But uh, nevertheless, he this one clip is saying, well, you know, solar worship, you know, actually. If you have enough knowledge and you really, it's mathematical and pure and wonderful, and and that if you if you have the right amount of knowledge, then that's kind of that's a good thing. It's a smart thing to do. And what he what I guess I'm taking from that is that he's basically you you could never understand that unless you understood the old things. So he believes that the that the sun god is going to to give us this new consciousness, this new enlightenment. And I've got just I'm going to play a bunch of clips of him saying this exact same thing that nobody is going to understand unless they understood the earlier stuff. So anyway, so that's that's an interesting thing that he essentially thinks that the sun, which I'm which Alice Bailey calls the solar logos Lucifer, so we've got this idea that Lucifer is going to give us this new new illumination this new consciousness shift to so that's so luciferian if you think about it it's 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 the garden of eden him him offering this apple and this knowledge and wisdom uh to be as gods then lucifer he is expecting to do all this to us again so it's sort of a sci-fi version of luciferianism here's a something that terry over at illuminati archive has wrote about the symbol for lucius trust he says in part one I, dis- uh, one, I display the Lucius Trust logo, and it too features this streaming blue light. 
the New Age symbolism uh, symbol inverted by Foster Bailey has a plethora of symbolic imagery. The symbol, according to Lucius Truss, is, quote, set in the limitless field of blue, which signifies the sphere of life expressions, our solar logos. Superimposed upon this uh, triangle of New Age forces is a five-pointed star uh, the, the, of the Christ, which would be, of course, the Antichrist if Lucius Trust is talking about it. The star is blue because it represents as much of the solar quality to which humanity can respond. You get that evolution if we, if we listen to the solar logos or get changed by them. You can see the symbol on the front cover of Lucius Trust's Beacon magazine, which also displays the blue light of the logos. In her book, Rays and Initiations, Alice Bailey reveals the solar logos as Lucifer himself. Today, as in millennia past, the sun god is being worshipped by the New Age as divine. Now, that would be pretty counter-intuitive uh, to much of what David Icke says, right? Oh, yeah, well, the sun god is, is all good, and he's the one that's going to change us. But he doesn't say that. But he does say that, actually. I mean, we're going to look at some clips. Let's just play some of these clips, and I'll comment on them. Here we go. And my, my feeling about this uh, awakening is that this is very, very much involved. I've got a, a lot more to do on this, to say the least, but I'm sure that the sun is far more than a source of heat. It is a place or a, 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 um, uh, an opening, a gateway, where great energetic change and code changes come into the solar system, same with others all around what we call the universe. And this next clip is a lot like that other one I'm trying to build, show that he thinks that the sun is what's going to cause this consciousness shift. But you'll, you'll hear when, you're, when, you, when he starts to talk about this that it's, it's coming through the black hole. So he'll oftentimes mention the black hole in regard to the sun. You get this idea that he's saying this, this energy is coming through that, through the sun, to Earth. And the reason that's important is because that's the seven rays thing of, of theosophy, that it's coming, that the, the solar logos is just a, 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 a way, a sort of method in which it comes from the sun to the earth. It's actually coming from the cosmic logos. And so the cosmic lo logos to the solar logos to the earth. So that's, that's theosophy. Now, listen to David Icke. This vibration coming from the black holes, this space vibration, now there'll be more to know, but I'm trying to put the themes here. As it moves through its cycle um, of change before coming back to the original vibration, it's changing the information coming out of the suns in the form of photons. It's changing the information construct. Therefore, we are starting to decode, as it moves through the cycle, different information. Press the limited... Uh, uh, so as this um, energy changes, it's triggering different photon information uh, from, from the suns, in this case our sun, and so people are starting to, those more open to it first, are starting to decode a different um, base information construct. And what that's doing is changing their perception as we decode it and move into a different era. If you... Um, it's interesting to note why he mentions suns plural there sometimes, and that's just a core theosophical idea that um and he, something that he writes about in his book love changes everything that uh you know once you evolve from a planetary logos to a solar logos you, you eventually can evolve uh to being over several suns um so when he's talking about suns plural in this case our sun 
it's it's again it has that idea in mind that there's there's an evolution of these beans in different different places so anyway um continuing here now in this next clip he's talking about the the solar religions or, or you know he had been talking about the solar religions and then he talks about sun worship in one level on, on uh, what people believe when they're worshiping the sun but then he talks about an esoteric level a different type of level which he uses a lot of words that i think are interesting when describing this when he says you know if you have access to the right information this understanding of the of the solar worship is different he, and he says it's you know vibrational and geometrical and sort of good terms if you know what you know what david ike's good terms sound like so he's essentially saying that there is a type of worship of the sun that that is different. He, of course, probably wouldn't call it worship, but just just listen to him here. At the time of this, um, the end of this global society, um, it went off into different uh, isolated enclaves and uh, became different uh, different uh, versions of that original knowledge. And one of the things that has come through history is the the moon and sun religion. The religions, re religion using the symbolism of the sun and the moon, which has been uh, manifested as the sun god and the sun goddess. Now this has many connotations. On some levels it's worship of the sun, but on deeper levels, deeper levels of knowledge, these are symbolic of es deep esoteric and uh, vibrational, uh, mathematical, uh, geometrical concepts. It depends what level you, you, you're meeting the, the knowledge at, what level you have access to. What level you have access to? He he thinks that it's a it's a matter of if you know enough, it's actually something that they're trying to keep from us. They're they're hoarding the knowledge. Now he believes, as we've seen, that the, the sun is going to change us. It's going to be the thing that changes us from this the state of disruption to a state where we're talking with the animals and total utopia, as he describes so many different different times. It's all coming from the sun, as our, our change is coming from the sun. So he must inherently view it as good. He he must see the the Illuminati version of, of reality in, sen in a sense as they're, they're trying to keep from us this knowledge of what the sun really is and all these types of things. So he is essentially endorsing sun worship in this, not he wouldn't say worship, of course, but veneration of the sun, no doubt, which is exactly what, you know, I mean, the Mason symbols and stuff too. It's, it's not, it's not any different than that. I mean, they see the sun as represent, as representation of Lucifer. It's Luciferianism. And that's essentially what he's endorsing here. I mean, there's not a way around this. I, I don't think, but uh, he's so vague. That's, that's the problem. Uh, here's a really good example about how this stuff in his past is sort of still a part of it. There is a, uh, you may or may not recognize or remember that he had worn turquoise a lot in his early days. They actually call it the turquoise period because he, he writes about it here in this book, Love Changes Everything, where he's got a turquoise shirt on the cover and some of the early interviews he's always wearing turquoise. He sees it as a, a vibration, you know, color therapy type of thing. And I'm just going to listen to him explain it here. We're going to listen to him explain this from an early interview, and then we're going to look at how this relates directly to theosophy. Here we go. Hello, okay. Yes, ma'am. I'd like to ask Dave, um, is there anything special about that suit that he has on? He wore that on the Terry Wogan show as well. The color turquoise. Yeah. You can answer that, David. If well, you... some people in the audience, and I know many at home, will be, will be aware that a new kind of therapy called color therapy is now beginning to, to grow very, very much in the, in the world. 
And it has a very sound basis because uh, this light which the Bible talks of, this energy, this life force that is sent out from the Godhead and all around creation, and it's this life force around the planet that's been disrupted, um, has sub-frequencies within it. And each of those have a vibration, a frequency of a color. And turquoise is the color of an energy within that light known as love and wisdom. And if you wear the color that is on the same frequency, then you attract it and absorb it much more efficiently. Okay, of note here is that he calls it love and wisdom. This is, I mean, he says that like it's its name, love and wisdom. The reason he says that is because it is its name. Alice Bailey in her seven rays um, is is what she called the second ray was of love and wisdom. Second ray, love and wisdom, the color indigo. And here's the interesting thing with the colors. Uh, they kind of vary a little bit. The Most theosophy, theosophy stuff nowadays uh, calls the second ray sort of a light blue and an indigo. And Alice Bailey herself seemed to be sort of ambiguous about the, the hard nature of the colors or whatever. But... The fact that he is talking about Alice Bailey's seven rays is of no doubt. Now, the reason I can say this is uh, in his book, Love Changes Everything, he actually has 13 rays here. Now, I'm going to compare this with Alice Bailey's seven rays. Um, okay, so as we mentioned, ray two, he says, is turquoise. And he says, this ray, reading from his book, this ray is the ray of love and wisdom, and it can help us to achieve these qualities, rays and most beings today, blah, blah, blah. So, of course, the second ray, according to Alice Bailey, is love and wisdom. Okay? Ray three, he says, this is known as the ray of intelligence, but the word is used in its widest sense. Okay? So let's read ray three is active intelligence from Alice Bailey. Now, he says that color is red. She says it's green. Okay? Whatever. Ray 4, he says, is green. He says, this ray is widely known in the New Age movement as harmony through conflict. It does not simply mean learning to live in harmony by having first to go through some catastrophe. It can also mean learning to curb your temper and anger by seeing the unpleasant consequences for yourself and others. It helps us to use a negative situation to change our thinking so that we begin to act positively. So Ray 4, green, harmony through conflict. Her Ray 4 is Harmony through conflict, except she calls it yellow. Okay, Ray 5 is silver. He says, this is known as concrete mind and science. Uh, Ray 5, according to her, is concrete science. Uh, Ray 6, according to David Icke, this is the self-awareness ray. Okay, and self-awareness ray. Ray 6 is love and devotion. Okay, so Ray 7 is the, is the law of order and ceremonial magic. And so that's what we have for Ray 7 is, is so Ray, no, so yeah, Ray 7 is correct. She says it's the Ray of Ceremonial Order and St. Germain. So that's actually his, his ascended master there, Rikorsky, that's uh, in charge of this one. Let's see what he says about that. This comes via the sun. The new age name for this ray is the Law of Order and Ceremonial Magic. It is known to us as the Rikorsky Ray. That's his, his guy, right? Because he is responsible for how this ray is used in his role as the lord of all civilization. So he is saying, Rakorsky, this, this is a pretty explicit example that he is talking to the same Saint Germain uh, that Alice Bailey was talking about. That Rakorsky is Saint Germain. There's no way around it. He's speaking with Ascended Masters. His first two books were directly from Ascended Masters, which he now talks bad about. 
And uh, he never really gives any good read. Well, I'll talk about that later. Uh, so anyway, so he does have some extra rays here. He's got ray 8 to 12. He says, these rays do not apply to us in the physical level. This is a frequency that ceases to reach the earth. And then ray 13, pure white. This is known to the universe as the Christ ray. This is an energy that, that Jesus channeled. This is the origin of the title of Jesus Christ. The Christ is not a person, but an energy Jesus could channel. So he, he adds his, his extra two, two rays, ray 8 to 12 and, and ray 13. So he kind of, you know, has more knowledge than Alice Bailey, apparently, according to according to this stuff. But the fact is that that this is the important part to recognize there. He is talking about the same seven rays that Alice Bailey are. He he takes his own spin on it for sure. You know, the different colors he adds two at the end, but it's the same thing. And the reason that's important is because what she says the seven rays are going to do. The seven rays are the the method for the human evolution. They come through the sun god Lucifer from the other places. So he is a full endorsement of that. Now, he, of course, says in later things, you know, this book was all messed up. You know, it was in the time when his mind blew. He also tries to downplay channeling nowadays where he's like, you know, the thing about channeling is it can come through a lot of different, you know, if, if somebody's channeling it and they have a particular belief system, then it'll sort of be messed up by that person's belief system. Okay, okay. So let's say a lot of the channeling he got was from some ladies who believed in theosophy, then of course, maybe it would be messed up by that or whatever. But the problem is, is that he obviously still believes, although he doesn't say it specifically, that the consciousness is going to come through the energy rays coming from the sun that's going to change us, uh, that comes from another place. He, He clearly believes the exact same model. So he believes the entities, although they clearly were lying as well. For example, his view on Jesus literally changes every book. But the thing is, he he keeps saying that these entities were the ones that told him all this stuff. Here, here's a real quick clip about about that from an early interview. Well, the Bible, I, the Bible, the figure I've been given by the Godhead is that the Bible, as a whole, is probably uh, carries about twenty percent truth, and the story of Jesus and the Gospels is probably about five percent of what happened. It's not so much that it's inaccurate, although parts of it are, but there is a vast amount of the Jesus story that simply isn't there. And it's the fact that it isn't there that it's misleading. So he, his entities told him, the Godhead specifically told him that, oh yeah, Jesus existed and everything. The only problem is that there's just... It's not doesn't have all the information, a lot of the real good information. He's talking about reincarnation, which he'll uh, talk about later, but was taken out. So Jesus' story is there. He he reiterates later, oh, yeah, Jesus, I totally believe Jesus existed and everything else. But it's just that there was also reincarnation added. So the Godhead was not exactly all that accurate on that if uh, his new belief, the zeitgeist version of Jesus, is correct. So anyway, moving on to another aspect of this. He he ha- is interesting because, uh, of course, if you know the theosophy version of of stuff, it, it's a new age with one twist that the the Maitreya, this 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 world teacher, will come back and sort of save the day. Now, this is something that he would uh, would never acquiesce to because. Uh, he has got this, this situation where he's, you know, talks about, oh, everybody, all these religions are waiting for the Calvary to come and, 
and he says this all the time, you know, how he's got David Ike-isms that he sort of spits out every time a particular subject comes up. And he, he, uh, he talks about the Calvary coming back and how foolish of a notion that is, that we should wait on something to save us from all this stuff. Now, what's interesting about that is that I've got several interviews of him talking now about this X factor, as he calls it. Now, this is something that he claims he doesn't know what it is, he doesn't know what it's going to be, but he feels, you know, deep in his bones that something is going to come uh, save us from all this stuff. Now, he actually mentions in another clip I didn't dig up right now, but he mentions that it is, uh, it's because we can't really do it all on our own, that, 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 that all this isn't going to really happen because we can't wake enough people up in time or whatever. So something has to happen to wake us all up at the same time to set us free from this prison. And that's essentially what I'm saying is happening in what theosophy is saying is happen happening. But listen to him talk about this X factor in, in recent interviews. Here, here we go. What I would what I would say very strongly, and it's coming more and more into my life, there is an X factor which um, I don't understand yet, but I sure as hell know is there. And it's an X factor which is going to um, bring an end to this uh, childish playground nonsense of human control. Um, Do you mean an external influence? There's something. Something. I'm absol I absolutely, at a deep level, I know it. Um, and um, when I ever I think about it, whenever I think uh, about what I'm talking about now, what I see clearly is um, the planet with a, a, a cell prison around it and a big lock and a key going in. And I'll tell you a funny story. Well, a funny story. I'll tell you a story. Um, I was feeling so strongly about this um, about two weeks ago. And immediately after, I went on the internet, and I'm going through, I'm looking for a picture for my talk. And in front of me was a planet in a prison cell with a big uh, lock on it, which said master on it, and a key going in. And that X factor, that master key, hmm. it's coming, it's coming. And it's not going to come like cavalry to save everything, but it is a big factor. Now, it's interesting that the reason he brings up this whole, oh, no, no, it's not like the Calvary thing. Like, uh, he must know that it's directly offensive to what he's been preaching about, the Calvary coming to save us from all this stuff the whole time. Because what he's describing is the Calvary coming to save us. Uh, and it becomes more and more clear as you hear more about what he's talking about with this X factor. So he almost feels internally guilty, I guess, by, by having to bring up this. Well, no, it's not, it's not that the Calvary is coming. You know, I'm not, I'm not offending what I've been saying, but it is a big factor. Well, I'll say it's a big factor. I mean, if this, if this external thing is going to come in and, and, and save us all, I mean, okay, this, this thing is going to come in and, and change everybody's paradigm and get them ready for this new evolution shift. Yeah, that's a big factor. You might even say that if he believes that, that, that to save the world, we have to all, uh, you know, awaken to this new possibility of consciousness, then yeah, that's the savior. The, the, the thing that comes in that this X factor. Now, I would say that can that could take the shape of uh, I think that that really ties it back into theosophy in that there that the main disconnect between Ike and theosophy is that there is no X factor, that there is no uh, 
awaiting of the return of the Christ of the Avatar of all ages or whatever. Uh, whereas, uh, uh, so that that's the main disconnect. There is no X factor, but now he's saying that there's an X factor. Here's a little bit more on this. Three, five, ten years. If you're a historian, what do you think you'd be writing about? I'd say, and I'm probably being optimistic, I'd say we, we would live in a global version of Nazi Germany within ten years, if we take that route. Mm-hmm. If we take that route, we'll, in ten years' time, be um, deeply into a transition to a very different world. It's just a choice. But this X factor is going to help us to... Um, to change the world to one that I would like to live in. Don't know what the X factor is, but I know it's coming. It'll be fun. Ah, no, it won't be fun. It's not going to be fun. That's going to be the least fun thing in the world. Uh, oh, man. But anyway, so you get this idea that, that it is, in fact, this X factor. But, you know, there is this X factor that's going to change the world into one that I would like to live in. God help us if this X Factor comes in and changes the world into one that David Icke wants to live in because Christians get totally wiped off the earth in that scenario. Uh, or those ones that can't, you know, can't, uh, they're still hanging on to the old age and, you know, won't evolve because they're, they're locked in this mind prison, you know, because the Illuminati created this, these religions to keep us, you know, from focusing. Anyway. One thing I meant to mention in, talk, in talking about Theosophy and, and David Icke is this idea of the moon being the catalyst for the fall of man. Now, in his, in his book, Love Changes Everything, he talks about how the moon in the time of Atlantis was brought into the solar system by uh, Lucifer and that he, he messed up the vibration of the earth and it caused all these cataclysms. The, the quote, earth spirit said only a thousand people survived and it was in such tatters. It brought us all vibrationally down, uh, and all this stuff. So he, he, and he describes it later on is basically that's what caused, uh, the vibrational going down to this very, very low vibration where he said before, you know, we were speaking with animals and could levitate and all this stuff. Now we had to eat animals and stuff and we could no longer eat energy and all this stuff. Anyway, he, he mentions that in a recent interview with uh, in Consciousness Media Network where, where uh, he says uh, that to somebody. He's like, I think this hacking happened in the Atlantis time period. And she's like, oh, yeah, so do I. And, he, and he's like, yes, well, I think that. It came in and, and messed the vibration up, and now we have to eat animals, and that's why the, this brutal stuff happens with animals killing animals. And she's like, oh, my gosh, nobody's ever explained that. That's exactly what I believe. I can't believe that um, that's, you know, whatever, true, I, I whatever. So anyway, what I want to say is that he's got this, his brand new book is talking about how the moon is is he kind of takes this old version, Love Changes Everything, where it was brought into the solar system and caused all this havoc. Now he does the same thing. He just sort of changes it. Now the reptilians created a false version of the moon. It's sort of like the Death Star that came into our, that they put into our solar system and caused all this havoc. And so he still kind of gets to believe the same thing he did back then, just with different characters. So, But what's interesting about that is that this connects to Alice Bailey, uh, I just did a quick search for the moon and Alice Bailey, and, and this is what she wrote about it. She says, the moon, the moon chain itself is a curious occult history not yet to be disclosed. This differentiates it from any other chains in the scheme and from any other chain in any scheme. An analogous situation or correspondence will be found in another planetary scheme within the solar system. All that is hidden in the history of the one solar system, which is united to ours within a cosmic ring past knot, hence the possibility of yet enlarging upon it. So she says she can't talk really about exactly how it happened or whatever. So essentially David Icke 
expands on it. He's like, well, I, I know what happened to the moon. Let me explain what Alice Bailey didn't. But what's interesting about this is when she continues. She says, certain brief hints may be given for the due consideration of students. The moon chain was a chain wherein a systematic failure was to be seen. Uh, point two, it is connected with the lower principles, which uh, Helena Blavatsky has stated are now superseded. Point three, the sexual misery of the planet finds its origin in the moon failure. Now, he goes on to talk about that. That Anyway, uh, in point four, the progress of evolution on the moon was abruptly disturbed and arrested by the timely interference of the solar logos. The secret of suffering in the earth chain, which makes its merit which makes its merit the name of the sphere sphere of suffering and the misery of the long and painful watch kept by the silent watcher uh, has its origin in the events which brought the moon chain to a terrific culmination conditions of agony and distress such as are found on our planet are found in in no such degree in any other scheme the misuse of vibra vibratory power of a certain sinner and the perversion of the distortion of force to a certain erroneous ends, not along the line of evolution, account for much of the moon mystery. Certain results, as the finding of its polar opposite, were hastened unduly on the moon chain, and the consequence was uneven development and a retardation of the evolution of a certain number of diva and human groups. Uh, the origin of the feud between the lords of dark face and the brotherhood of light, which found scope, for the activity in the Atlantean days and during the present root race can be traced back to the moon chain. Uh, one about whom not may be said, the existence of who through this life informs seven solar systems, including ours, also called the cosmic logos. So anyway, she says the exact same thing. It was back in the Atlantean times and she doesn't really give a lot of details about what happened, but it's somehow the source for all that's negative in the world is somehow connected to the moon. And that uh, it was also a retardation of the evolution of a certain number of diva and human groups. Now, without going into detail, this is exactly what I mean, he describes this in several different pages about how, you know, um, all the, 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 the different evolutions of the divas and stuff like that were uh, trying to prevent this whole moon thing and he, and, and whatever he, he, this is exactly the same thing. So anyway, the, even the moon stuff that he's talking about is a perfect example of exactly Alice Bailey. So it's just, it's just crazy how much, uh, he is preaching theosophy, but just never gives enough details to really, um, to really snag, to really ca catch him with it. So, uh, okay. So, one last thing I wanted to mention about this is something that I think is really the key or at least a, or a factor that is really sums up the David Icke uh, thing and why it's dangerous. So l let me go ahead and play this, this final clip. I'm absolutely convinced that the end of this prison society is a done deal. I think mm. the outcome is going to happen. I think it's meant to happen. And um, uh, we're now seeing, and it will go on for a while, but we're now seeing the last throes of a dying um, system um, where the Illuminati in their box are believing they're crashing the system to create something else. 
when it's actually crashing, ultimately, for another reason. Okay, listen to that real closely. He believes that the Illuminati is crashing the system right now, uh, intentionally, to create something out of that. I would say the New World Order, right? That's what they want. It's order out of chaos. He's, he, he believes that they're crashing this in system in, intentionally in order to create a New World Order. But what he says is that he believes that, what, that what's actually going to emerge from that is not the New World Order, but his utopia. Okay? Now, here's the problem for all of us. In the New Age, you know, if, if you're in the New Age and you think you're waiting for David Icke's utopia, is that if... The New World Order is intending to not just crash the economic system and bring out a global government out of that or whatever, but what if they have bigger plans? What if they wanted to crash the system uh, in a bigger scale, something that looks like the entire thing, the entire New World Order system has been crashed, and then they bring and they use what what David's calling an X factor here. What if they bring in a totally supernatural thing that starts to get people on board with a world religion and a world government? Let's call it an alien presence thing, you know, where we all think that God now has been discredited and, and we're all part of one global family and, you know, wars in, of the past and we all have this potential for new evolution now because there they are. All we have to do is be like them and all this stuff. What if that happens instead? And then what if this crash... He says, oh, this crash is going, they're thinking it's going to be, you know, just, they're going to crash it and create a just bigger version of what's already existed. But what if what they're ex expecting to rise out of the ashes of that is not supposed to look anything like the old New World Order? To get people to willingly embrace it, it's going to look like love and peace and the chance of world uh, love and everything else. And this utopia thing is a possibility. Zeitgeist addendum and everything. You know, it's a whole new system. Everybody's going to be on board with that, including David Icke. He's going to say, you know, this happened because of, you know, whatever. If this X factor comes in, let's say aliens or something like that happened, that would be his X factor that changed the world paradigm and prepared the world for all this stuff. I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, the what comes out of the ashes of the crash is what we should be wary of. Especially if it looks like a utopia. That's what the whole problem is. That what Ike is preparing us for and making us all look for is this utopia that comes out of a crash. And that is what the, the, the New World Order is trying to make it look like is a utopia that comes out of the crash, not just a bigger version of the big bad new world order. It's, it's anybody should know this. Uh, if anybody should know, it, David Icke should know it. it's problem reactions and solution. The, the bigger, the problem in this case, the cancer of the new world order and the death and destruction that is now being shown to everybody. Uh, the bigger of a monster it is, the bigger, the savior that saves us from it. It's the perfect setup. It's it's the perfect Hegelian dialectic. So, anyway, that's kind of that's kind of one of the focuses of this is that the we may have underestimated the real agenda of the New World Order. Maybe it's not just police cameras and genocide and uh, vaccines and, and and all this stuff. Maybe it's a world government that doesn't look like what we thought we were fighting, a world government that we willingly embrace, a world government that looks like it's a, it's being, it's happening because of a new 
new outlook in terms of religious stuff that all the religions of the world are are you know morphing into this new thing because of this new revelation this new x factor so if that's the agenda if it's much bigger than we're expecting then david ike is nothing more than a mouthpiece for the real new world order so anyway that's kind of the trouble in 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 presenting this information is how do you you can obviously tell i'm not having a really my head's all over the place i think i still just a little a little sick from this morning, but uh, anyway, so so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to end the show by playing a clip of something about fasting. I haven't really thought much about fasting in my life, and it's really never been a factor. I've fasted a few times here and there, but I was thinking about it recently and realizing I didn't know much about it, so I was looking around for good good teaching and preaching on fasting. I started looking for all the preachers that I could think of and seeing if they had anything on fasting. Surprisingly, not a lot of them did. Uh, I did find one little clip. It's about 15 minutes here uh, from Paul Washer talking about fasting that I thought was just so wonderful, humble, and and thought, uh, thought-provoking and really down-to-earth uh, information about fasting. So I thought I'd share that with you as we close out here today. Thanks for your time, and uh, I'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Well, first of all, from Matthew 6, we realize that in Jesus' teaching, he assumed that his people would do certain acts of piety. One of them was to give to the poor in, in I think, uh, Matthew 6, 3. And then it was to pray. He said, when you pray. And then without changing course, he says, when you fast, in verse 16. So Jesus is assuming that he will have a charitable, praying, fasting people. And um, now... When we look at fasting, we have to be very, very careful. Um, an old Bible teacher by the name of um, oh, Brother Conrad, he, um, he told me one time that uh, walking in the truth is like walking on a razor blade. You can fall off either side. Mm. And when we come to fasting, like other crucial doctrines, there are great extremes everywhere. Sure. So we have to be very, very careful. We know about Jesus' teaching regarding the Pharisees and their hypocritical use of fasting, that they would put on a gloomy face and right. even believe that they would mix up a type of makeup out of ashes and cover their face with it so that people would know that they were fasting. And... Um, one of the most frightening things that Jesus says in the entire Bible, he says regarding them, they will have their reward in full. So we have to be very, very careful there that we do all things for the glory of God and for the good of others. Amen. Now, when we come to fasting, there's people always ask me this question, well, what is fasting about and how do you know when to fast and why do you fast? Well, first of all, you have to have a correct theology with regard to the sovereignty of God and his lordship over the world. Fasting is not a means of manipulating deity. Good point. We do not have this old pietistic idea that I'm going to somehow gain favor with God by making myself suffer. Christians suffer. A man who truly walks with God and practices godliness will suffer in this fallen world, but we're never to, uh, it's never to be a self-inflicted suffering. <laughs> And so fasting has no purpose such as that. The best way I can describe fasting and the cause of it is this. It's all about one passion driving out another passion. Let me give you an example. Let's say that, um, that I 
have desired for three years to go on a vacation with my wife. And uh, we've saved up, we've talked about it, just every day it's an issue. We've marked off the days on the calendar. And after three years, I'm walking out the door fully excited about this wonderful passion that is going to be fulfilled. I'm going to go on a vacation with my wife. Right then, as I'm getting ready to get in the car, my little boy Ian comes running up to me and grabs his head and says, Daddy, Daddy, my head, and he falls over on the sidewalk. Now. At that moment, if I'm going to stomp my foot and say, oh, man, three years now and I can't go on my vacation. Mm. No. What's going to happen? I have totally forgotten about the vacation. I could care less. As a matter of fact, if someone were to mention to me that I've lost my vacation, I would look at them as though they were a monster. Why? The passion that I have for my son and his need has driven out every thought of every other passion. That is fasting. Why do we fast? Listen, you can, you can really fall into a legalism on fasting. You can fall into so many errors. But if you'll just hold what I'm saying regarding passion, it will guard you. And it's this. Let's say that I, I have a loved one who is lost. And it seems that every time I preach the gospel, it's a closed door. I, I'm disturbed about it. God has laid an, uh, his own burden on my heart about this person. And I may come to the point where I say, it's not that, all right, I'm going to fast two days in order to earn this person's salvation. No, it's, I am so concerned about this person, food is no longer an issue in my life. I don't care. It's, it's about thinking about the nations where the gospel is not preached. Now, we have to be careful here. Why? Because we have to trust in the sovereignty of God or we'd lose our mind. That's right. I mean, there's so many needs out there. But I believe that God can lay burdens on his people to such an extent that their heart is right, that they'll say, it's not that I'm giving up food to, to earn something. It's just that this passion is so strong in my heart that even the mention of food seems almost wrong. And so the people who can truly fast are people who truly have a passion for God in the advancement of his kingdom. Wow. When we look at it that way, then it doesn't turn into legalism. Dr. Edney, that's a wonderful perspective, isn't it? It is. And, and one, one issue that I have considered during the fast is, you know, when you get a hunger pain, then that's another prompting for prayer and, and to focus on God and to drive out that issue of hunger. Because, I mean, hunger is not going to supernaturally go away just because we're fasting. But we, we can use those bodily feelings to help us focus more on our Lord. You know, that is, that is so true. As a matter of fact, when every once in a while, uh, it seems like the Holy Spirit will just bring something to mind that maybe uh, we're off in an area. And with me, sometimes it's being so busy that, well, I'm not practicing the presence of God. And um, I will fast sometimes on those days. Why? For that very reason that the doctor said, when I set aside uh, or separate myself from food, which also means fellowship in our country, uh, every time there's a twinge, every time there's a weakness, I don't know what it is, I can't explain it, but it throws my mind right back into the presence of God. There are so many different reasons in Scripture for fasting, but that is one of I could say my favorites. One of the reasons uh, for fasting in my life is that. Another reason for fasting that people often overlook is 
preparation and growth and godliness in the sense of seeing yourself as you really are. L let me just give you an example. Let's say that you bump into a Christian uh, in your workplace or something and you say hi and they're real quick and irritable with you and maybe even a little offensive and they kind of storm down the, the hallway and then in a couple hours later they come back and they say, you know, listen, Mike, um, I'm, I'm not feeling good today. I've got a lot of problems. I've got headaches. I'm just not myself today. Well, actually, it's just the opposite. They are being their self when they do that. You see, when we have food and comfort and clothing and everything is going right, we're not seeing a real picture of ourselves. We're seeing a person propped up by all the good things in their life. All right. Now, you take all those things away, and that person becomes irritable, short-tempered, uh, self-centered, everything. They're, that's the real them. So when we fast, what is a wonderful opportunity in fasting, especially if you're a person who doesn't eat right, because if you don't eat right as a practice of life, then when you fast, it's not starvation, but it's toxins coming out of your body. Good point. Mike, it's time for a break. The biggest thing that I wanted to ask Brother Paul was uh, what, what direction do we have from Scripture in terms of exactly how to accomplish a biblical fast? Good question. Well, as you know, there, there isn't a whole lot in Scripture regarding that. Um, the main focus in Scripture, and you know, I, I noticed that you were discussing about is it wrong to take medicine while you're fasting and things. And, and the answer, of course, is no, it's not wrong because that's missing the entire point. Right. The entire point is going back to just this. I have a hunger for God or for the advancement of God's will that is so great it drives out every other hunger. Now, when it's only kind of the, the Pharisee who starts in on talking about technicalities to that. It is a person who pushes the plate away, maybe uh, pushes even fellowship away and everything just to be alone with God and to deal and wrestle with issues. Now, in my own life, um, I have found the following things. Number one, um, I, I don't really need to be thinking a whole lot about fasting unless I get my eating, <laughs> the, the way I eat, uh, biblical. I need to be very careful about that. I need to, to realize that food is to be enjoyed, uh, that no food is to be rejected, that uh, if it is received uh, with gratitude, as Paul, as Paul tells Timothy in 1 well, Timothy 4. We've done programs 4. about that before yeah. as well. And so, but at the same time, it, fasting, flow, fasting is like knowing God's will. Knowing God's will flows out of a lifestyle of renewing the mind in the Word of God. Fasting flows out of a lifestyle of prayer. And um, the preparation of it, if, if I feel like I'm going to go into a, uh, a long time of fasting, you know, let's say more than a week, be very, very careful with regard to the amount of water I drink. I want to drink a lot of water. I want to be very careful prior to that time that uh, I eat carefully. Um, I like to try to eat a lot of vegetables and things like that. After coming out of a fast, you have totally missed the point of coming out of that fast. You run to McDonald's. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and just commit gluttony. But um, 
there's really not a whole lot on, on exactly how to do it. We see cases where um, here the, the Jews are about ready to be destroyed uh, by the evil Haman, and um, we see just an immediate, there's not much time for preparation, it's just tell the people to fast. And, and the crisis is so great, I can just see the Jewish people all over the place just falling to their knees and falling to their faces and, and fasting. And um, we see in cases of Christ just simply going out into the desert, being impelled by the Spirit to go out. We don't see a whole lot of preparation. One of the reasons is his lifestyle was biblical. His lifestyle was, was biblical. Let me ask mm-hmm. you this. Uh-huh. When you're fasting, do you, I know people uh, have different uh, different ways of fasting, perhaps. I mean, do you take God's Word, of course. Do you take a journal and write down things uh, that you're praying about? And at what point do you know that it's the time, the point to end the fast? Well, for me, um, sometimes I fast and it is I separate some days in which I'm not going to be at the church building, I'm not going to answer the phone, I'm going to be in the Word, or I'm going to be praying. That's fine. That doesn't happen much. So uh, sometimes when I know that I'm going to have a very busy day, I will fast so that during all those busy activities, as the doctor said, you know, when that twinge comes, it sets my mind back on what I'm really supposed to I do. I love that point, too. That was a great and, point, and Dr. Eddie. And so, you know, you have to be very, very careful. You've got all these people making all these inferences from Scripture about how you're supposed to fast when they're inferences, human inferences, and not commands. Very good. It goes back to just a man who says passionate. And, and uh, how do I know when I need to stop? This is going to sound pretty secular and trite, but basically it's when I want to stop. Okay. When I feel like it's enough. When, you know, again, I'm not trying to earn something from deity. This is about my passion. This right. is about uh, I feel like it's settled. I have, I have comfort now. I, I feel perhaps? like I have peace, and okay. it's, it's time to go on. And, and here's, I want to make a distinction between, uh, I don't really want to say it this way, but an Old Testament fasting that we see in a New Testament fasting. Realize this. When we're fasting, this is not a morbid thing. We are fasting in the presence of Christ. Mm-hmm. How can you not delight? I learned this a long time ago from a fellow in Peru. He said, your fasting is so morbid, it's a work. He goes, it's not a delight. And I began to look at that. and I, mm. You know, I'm separating from food, and it's not to starve. I'm separating from food because there's something better, and it's Christ. And, and how can it be morbid if it's bringing me into a closer fellowship with him? So you're fasting. There should be a sense of joy in it. Dr. Edney? Uh, I mean, that's, that's wonderful insight for me. And, uh, Brother Paul, I know that we're, we're taught by Scripture that we're not to make a, any big deal about us fasting, and we're... It just we're not to use the example of the Pharisees, and we're basically just to do it and let it be between ourselves and the Lord. But, you know, sometimes there are others that, that need to know what we're doing, like our wife, um, you know, so maybe she's not preparing meals or um, or whoever. That, is, that, is that a problem? It's not a problem at all. It's a condition of the heart. Let me give you an example from, from giving. You know, we need to give so that uh, one hand doesn't know what the other hand is doing. Right. But sometimes I'll come across a young preacher. He's struggling. He has almost nothing. Now, I could secretly pass him 
you know, $20 or something, and, and that would be good. But you know what I do sometimes? I'll walk up to them, and I'll hand them a check, or I'll hand them some money, and I'll say, this is for me. And I want you to know that because I want you to know as an older preacher, I esteem what God's doing in your life, and I affirm it. So see, it's the condition of the heart. It's not a thing of... Because you can practice the hiddenness thing in the name of idolatry. Right. That's a good point. It's just, you know, what is the point here? Is it the glory of God and the benefit of others, or is it self-exaltation? And I guess if, you know, sharing with those who are closest to you, then they can support us in prayer as we go through the fast. My little boys are five and three. And sometimes when Daddy has to separate himself from everything and go out and pray, they've asked their mother, what's Daddy doing? What, what a, you know, I hope that my little boys will wake up at 3 in the morning sometime wanting a glass of water and go by my study and see me on my knees weeping. Wow. So it, it, it's hiddenness, but it, you, know, you have to be careful about that too. It's, again, are you desiring God's glory and the advancement of his kingdom or your own exaltation? And I think, Dr. Eddie, that takes us back to uh, a word that Brother Paul used earlier, which reminded me of some things, some teachings and, and messages I've heard from John Piper, and that's the use of the word passion. Absolutely. I, and that, that brings a whole different perspective to the whole point of fasting, and I, I, that is great encouragement. Thanks for listening to Nowhere to Run. You can download all of the archives to this show and others I've done for free at NowhereToRunRadio.com. Your prayers and donations are needed and appreciated. You can partner with me to reach many more people with discipleship, apologetics, and the gospel. Go to Nowhere to Run Radio to help support this ministry. Thanks for your time.